Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Testing one. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us His will, according to His purpose, which He forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we obtain inheritance, in In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, filled with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, till we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Father in heaven, thank you again for your word. Thank you that you reveal to us all that is said here and all uh, that is done so that we might know you and trust you. And we ask again that you would do the same this morning. Lord Jesus, take this word and help us to see your goodness and kindness 
Help us to be able to trust you. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you'd give us eyes and ears to hear and receive this word, that we may trust the Son to the glory of the Father. For we ask all of this, Father, Son, and Spirit, for your glory. Amen. Uh, just a quick note before I begin. Um, if you have your fingers there in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, please keep them there. Uh, I'll be going through a number of other passages up on the screen as well. Now, over the past few weeks, we've, been, we've begun uh, our time with a question to discuss, and I think that's been helpful to get our thinking juices going. And so I'm also going to ask a question to begin our time as well. Here's the question. Here's the question. Here we go. If knowing and trusting Jesus is all we need to be saved, why do we need to know that it is the Trinity that saves? Turn to the person next to you. Have a discussion about this question. I'll give you 30 seconds. Go for it. Okay, let's come back together. We had a few people scratching their chins going, oh, yeah, so what is the difference? See, knowing Jesus is sufficient for salvation. That is true. At minimum, what we need to know is who Jesus is and what he's done, and to place our trust that Jesus has died and risen again. That's all we need. But would you agree that the goal of the Christian life is growth in discipleship, growing in understanding God's Word, because that's the foundation of the whole of our lives and leads to growth in all areas of the Christian life, like we've illustrated in the five key purpose areas for SLE Church. Now, if that's true, then we don't want to be in the habit of asking, what is the minimum necessary for me to believe? We don't want to do that. We want to be in the habit of deepening our understanding and growing in it. Now, the aim is not a PhD level of understanding, nor even a university degree level of understanding. The aim is growing maturity, because as we grow, we then grow in other areas of life too. A growing understanding that will saturate our connection with each other, with our service to church, our reaching out to the world, and our worship of God. Uh, put it this way. The, the best uh, friendships, the best friendships and relationships are ones in which we keep growing. Uh, what is the big difference between an acquaintance and a friend? An acquaintance is someone in your life, you might interact with them regularly, but you don't know them that deeply. Uh, an acquaintance doesn't know your likes or dislikes, they don't know your passions, they don't know what fuels you, they don't share the stories that make your heart sing with joy or your heart sting with pain. And so the barber who cuts my hair, he's a quiet guy, English is his second language, it has been very difficult to begin conversations and strike up conversations with him. He's an acquaintance. A friend is someone who knows these things about us and then also explores them and gets to know us in deeper ways. See, the goal of this sermon series is to make sure that we are not acquaintances with God. If we say we love Him, then we will grow in knowing Him as He has revealed Himself. Now, 
any story worth listening to as a story that has a problem to overcome. Some difficulty or trial needs to be worked through. Now, the Bible's main problem that needs solving comes early on in the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, a story very familiar, right? Adam and Eve created by God. Everything is great and good at the end of chapter 2. And then the serpent comes in. He plants a seed of doubt in Eve's mind about the goodness of God. The fruit she knows not to eat, but the serpent deceives her. This is what he says. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, the deception from the serpent is is subtle. He's essentially saying that God knows something that you don't, and he's holding it back. God knows that if you eat the fruit, something good will happen. You will know good and evil. You will be able to decide for yourself what is good and evil, what is right and wrong. And then we read in verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. There is a cascade of disaster here. But notice the heart of the problem. The problem is not just that she took the fruit and ate it. It's not just her actions. The problem is what happens before that. She saw the fruit and desired it. The problem is in her heart. The problem of the heart has then infiltrated every human being since. Here's how the Apostle Paul picks up on that problem. Uh, Romans chapter 1. For although they knew God, that is humanity, they did not honor Him as God or give Him thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. One twenty four. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. You see how Paul mentions the heart there. The heart is the root of any fruit. The heart is the driver of the actions. It's the heart that's become darkened. Instead of worshipping God, it turns inward. It's to the heart that God judges, giving people over to the lusts and desires of their hearts for impurity. The Bible says that is the root of sin. Now, call it what you want, but human sin is one of the most verifiable facts in the world. All the self-help books and education and technology and advancement over the centuries hasn't changed one simple, verifiable fact. Humans tend to be self-interested and prideful, hurting each other constantly and messing up our world. And it's all because of our hearts. And here's why that's important to know, why I've been kind of laboring this point about the heart. If the problem was Adam and Eve's actions then all God would demand from people is right actions. Do the right thing and you'll be fine with him. But if the problem is the heart, then God demands that our hearts be right before him. But you can't do that. A person in need of a heart transplant cannot operate on themselves. They need help. Now, if the problem is a problem of our hearts and resulting actions that hurt us and others was not a problem enough of a problem, there's another problem. God's good and right response to human sin is to put a stop to it, 
to prevent people from doing this forever. He cuts their life short. Because humanity is his creation that has rebelled against him, he responds with judgment, eternal condemnation for the offense against his infinite holiness. There is no other judgment that is right or fitting for such an outrage against the Maker. Now, if God had left the world under judgment, He would have acted fairly. He would have done nobody wrong in leaving us under His judgment. But God is not a God just of holiness. He is also a God of grace and mercy and love. What is then the Father's role in our salvation? What is the Father's role in giving us the help that we need? He loves and He plans and He executes that plan through Jesus and the Spirit. See how the Apostle Paul put it in our Bible reading. So if you've got your Bibles there, look with me at uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Here Paul is blessing God the Father because it's the Father who blesses us in Jesus Christ, the Father who chose us to be saved in Jesus before He created the world chose us so that we wouldn't just be us, us, sinful people constantly rebelling against Him and hurting each other. He chose us to be transformed in Jesus, to be holy and blameless before Him. The plan of God was to wash away the filth that makes us sinners and to present us to Himself as pure and spotless. He chose us. Yes, God the Father predestined us. Verse 5. That means God was the one who decided beforehand who to be saved, chosen to be adopted as His children, and all of that done in verse 6 to the praise of His glorious grace. Predestination, so often a tricky subject. It always raises questions about fairness. Is it fair that God chooses some and not others to be saved? Well, in answer to that question, go back to point number one what we just covered. If we want fairness for everyone, that is, everyone getting what they deserve, then don't we all deserve judgment? Everyone gets judgment. That's fair. Predestination is unfair because it's about grace, not fairness. Grace is a gift and God is the gift giver. And He has the freedom to do as He pleases and to gift that gift to any undeserving person he sees fit. And so that reminds us that God is God and we are not. Salvation is a free gift. And then some might ask the question, well, what about our free will? Doesn't predestination destroy our choices? And that's a great question. But hold that thought, and I'm going to come back to it in point number four. Okay. For now, the big point, here in point number two is that the father's role uh, is about the father's role in our salvation is that he is the one who loves and plans and the father executes that plan through the son 
which brings us to the Son. Right? The Christian message. Think about the Christian message, which is very simple. Jesus died for you. Because of our sin, we have blinded ourselves to God and rejected and spurned His goodness. We have followed our heart's desires, leading away from God. And so we are all under condemnation. The gospel, the good news, is that Jesus has come to lift that weight of condemnation. So here it is super important to remember who Jesus is and why it's important for salvation to actually work. See, remember, our sin is against God. The Father's wrath is upon us. And so when Jesus comes to bear the punishment, God is taking the punishment we deserve, and he does so willingly. Let me give you a bad analogy. Let me be clear, this is bad. It's a bad analogy for explaining the relationship between the Father and the Son and what they have done. It's bad. Okay? Let me see, let's see if you've heard this one before too. There's a train conductor who is responsible for lowering a bridge so that trains can pass safely. One day he brings his young son to work with him and his son is out there playing but he gets trapped in the gears that lower the bridge. A train is approaching and the conductor is caught. Lower the bridge and save everyone on the train will save his son. Without time, the conductor makes the heart-wrenching decision to lower the bridge and kill his son, saving everyone on the train. And that is what God did for you. The father crushed his son to save your life. Anyone heard that analogy before? few nods? No? Okay. If you haven't, praise God. It's bad. <laughs> right? The key reason why that's bad and why it's an unhelpful analogy is because it lacks an understanding of the Trinity. Jesus was no victim to Roman injustice. Jesus willingly laid down his life. Here's how he put it. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. So you see two things here. First, Jesus lays down his life on his own accord. He decided to give up his life. He wasn't an unwitting victim. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was a willing sacrifice on his part. And the second, the laying down of Jesus' life was part of the Father's plan. You see it at the end of the verse. The Father and the Son planned this salvation act. They were in concert together. The Son wasn't trapped. He was in control, just as was planned with him and his Father. And Jesus wasn't an innocent third party. Jesus was God himself. Now, getting that right is actually a matter of life and death. It really is. Now, I'm going to get a little bit technical here at this point, but stick with me, and I'll make it, it'll hopefully make sense in the end. Uh, in the early church, there was a, a false teaching that began to gain popularity. It was the idea that Jesus was a created being. So there was this guy named Arius, uh, and he argued that Jesus was the first supreme created being endowed with godlike qualities. He said that Jesus was similar in substance to God, but not the same substance. Now, that might sound fairly like a fairly nuanced technicality, but the arguments of Jesus, uh, sorry, the arguments of Arius about Jesus' nature can be found in the wrong teachings of Islam, in the Jehovah's Witnesses, and the Mormons. 
Each of them also teach that Jesus was a created being, not the same as God. And so getting this right, this little bit of technicality, is not just being about technically right, it's actually a matter of life and death. See, the problem the Bible has to solve is this. Only God can save humanity. A creature cannot. No creature can cancel the power of sin and death and then offer life to other creatures. Only the Creator can do that. And so if Jesus was a created being, He could not save humanity, no matter how high His status. And if uh, if Jesus was a created being, if Jesus was not eternally divine, then it would be blasphemous to offer Him worship. We've been singing songs to Jesus. But if He is just a created being, remember the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That's a worship commandment. It is utterly, utter blasphemy to offer worship to Jesus if he is not eternally divine. But because Jesus is truly God, he is the same substance, eternally God, He is able to save. When it comes to earth, when he comes to earth to dwell among us, he is both fully God and fully human. Truly God in every sense of being God. He demonstrates the power of God as he calms the storms and raises the dead. He demonstrates the all-knowing nature of God in how he is able to search hearts and minds. When God reveals himself as slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, that is the character of Jesus that we see on full and perfect display in Jesus. And Jesus is truly human in every sense of being human. He shares the full human experience. He knows what it's like to love to cry, to weep and mourn. He knows what it's like to be weary. And he knows what it's like to be tempted to sin and distrust God. This is what makes Jesus the perfect sacrifice where animals previously couldn't do the job. Only God can cancel the power of sin and death and on the cross as what Jesus does. Only God can give eternal life And in the resurrection, that is what Jesus does. And only a perfect human can be an appropriate substitute for humanity. And in the person of Jesus, that is what we get. For salvation to work, the Son must be truly God eternal. So, the Father loves and plans our salvation. The Son executes those plans because Jesus is truly God. He is able to carry out those plans fully and perfectly. And because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we can have forgiveness, the power of sin is cancelled, and we can have eternal life. Now, at this point, it's worth asking, what part do we play in the salvation plan? Right? Or to frame the question in another way, at what point in this, in this timeline do you think that the Spirit enters the life of a believer? So we know the Spirit dwells in believers. He is the seal and guarantee of our eternal inheritance. That's what Paul says at the end of Ephesians 1 there in our reading. So when does the Spirit enter into the life on this continuum? I understand that salvation and conversion can be a, a muddled process, but if we were to kind of string it out into one timeline, 
When do you think the Spirit enters? Is it before you become a Christian? As you proclaim faith or a little bit after? Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I think that for most people, or most Christians would say, that the Spirit comes to dwell in the believer after you've made the choice to follow Jesus. So the gospel is preached. We respond with free, our free will and to accept it or reject it. And then if we accept, the Spirit enters and dwells within us. But let me say, that's also not quite right. And here's why. Come with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. All right, so now I'm circling back to that free will question and predestination. Does predestination contradict free will? Let's think about that for a second. What does the Bible say about the will of man? In man's sinful condition, what are we like? You see how Paul puts it there in chapter 2, verse 1? Dead in trespasses and sins. And what does Paul mean by dead? Uh, think of it this way. In the 19th century, there was a very big fear of being buried alive. Various people came up with ways to prevent this, including one in 1829, when, I've got to read this, when Dr. Johann Gottfried Tarberger, right, Johann Gottfried Tarberger designed a system where a bell could alert a cemetery night watchman. Uh, the corpse would have a string attached to its hands and feet that would ring a bell and alert everyone that the person inside the coffin was still alive. If there was no ringing, that person was not alive. Why? Because dead people don't ring bells. In the same way, our free will has the same ability to choose God as a dead person has the ability to ring a bell. Being dead in sins gives us no ability to follow God. Rather, being dead in sin is sort of like being a zombie, a walking, the walking dead. Uh, have a look at verse 2 and see what, how Paul puts it. Uh, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. See, our will is not free to choose God. Our will is bound to sin. Our spiritual nature is biased towards sin, like a shopping trolley that can't keep straight. Our will follows Satan, the power, prince of the power of the air. Our lives, are, we live our lives for the passions of the flesh. Our will is bound to sin, and sinners love themselves more than anything else. And that is what it means to be spiritually dead. The good news is that God overcomes that deadness. Have a look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. See there, God who was overflowingly rich in mercy and love, he loved us when we were dead, 
and seen in the middle of verse 5, made us alive together with Christ. This is what we call the miracle of regeneration. It is a work of the Spirit. Uh, Here's another way of putting it, the SLE Church's statement of faith. I love that we've been looking at it. Might be worth all of us looking at it again, right? The Holy Spirit brings about new birth, dwells in believers and unites them to Jesus Christ and Christ's body, the church. See the first part of that sentence there I've highlighted? I don't know if you can read it. Sorry, it's really small. The Spirit's role is to bring about new birth. So when does the Spirit enter the life of a believer? Well, enters before the choice is made to follow Christ. Because faith in Christ is a gift of the Spirit, an ability for those who are made alive. When Nicodemus heard that you must be born again, he, he was a little bit confused. Can I really jump back as an adult into my mother's womb? That's got a sting. To which Jesus replied, no, 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 brother, no, 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 brother. Unless you are born of water and spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Right? The Spirit must help you be born again. That's my translation. No, no, brother. That's what he says. Right? The Spirit who works with the Father and the Son achieves. That's why Peter said, now I'm going back to ESV. This is why Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. See that there? God causes it. Not me. Not my will, but his will. I didn't choose God any more than I chose the time and place of my original birth. Now, an important little side tangent before I wrap up. Does the work of the Father, Son, and Spirit in salvation, does God's predestination, God's work in regeneration, does that mean our evangelism then is not needed? It's all God's work, right? I don't need to preach the gospel then if it's all God. God's work. Let me give four quick responses to that. The first is this. Predestination and regeneration means that our prayers are actually effective. We pray for our loved ones and and strangers to convert, knowing that God is able to effect change. We're not praying for someone to come to the right conclusions on their own. We're not praying that they make the choice on their own, because if it was up to them alone, nothing would happen. They are dead, but our prayers for the conversion of our loved ones can be effective because it is the Spirit who brings life, who opens hard hearts and lifts people's eyes to Jesus. Second, predestination does not blunt evangelism for one moment. It is the fuel for evangelism. God promises that if you go fishing, you will catch fish. I know there are some guys here who enjoy fishing, Right? But what if, like, I know some guy who's, guys who enjoy playing golf. What if God said, if you go golfing, I promise you holes in one? Then you would go golfing. Right? You may not have a hole in one every hole, but if you had that promise, you would go. You and I don't know who is elect. God does. And God says that if you simply share the gospel with them, that will bring them to life. So we have a guarantee that evangelism will never return empty. That's number two. Number three, the doctrine of regeneration actually gives us real hope. Nobody is beyond the reach of the Spirit to revive them. As long as they are alive, 
there is always hope. And number four, and it might sound like a contradiction, but it's true, speaking the gospel is how people hear and respond. God works with our speaking to bring life. God is the final decisive cause for faith, and he willingly chooses to work through our preaching, sharing, and praying. And so speak the gospel with grace, with humility, keep listening and engaging, because God promises he can and he will bring life to those who hear and trust. So, okay, let me summarize where we've been so far and give one final illustration to wrap up before applications. The triune God saves. It's the Father who plans and purposes our salvation. He calls us to heed his word and do an about face, to turn away from our sins and repent. He wants us to open our arms and embrace him. But we are dead in our sins. Our hands are tied behind our, ba- our, tied behind our backs and we are unwilling to do it. So Jesus comes and only Jesus can do it. He reaches behind our backs and unties our hands. They are free, but our hearts are still unwilling. So Jesus takes our arms from behind our backs, wraps them around him, and in the embrace of his arms, we are made alive. Life comes back to our hard hearts, and then we embrace Jesus. And all of that happens by the quiet work of the Spirit. It doesn't matter if you've been a good person and have attended church your whole life. It doesn't matter if you've done things that make you feel deeply ashamed. The triune God embraces us and helps our weak and unwilling arms embrace Him. Salvation is truly and astonishingly and awesomely and wondrously the work of our triune God. So, what does this mean for the gospel we believe? It means we really bring nothing to the table. There are no works There is no way I can get my life in order to be saved or worthy of salvation. Jordan Peterson, big famous speaker and author at the moment, he's got a book, 12 Rules for Life, and one of his rules is get your house in order. But the problem is we we can't. When it comes to God and our salvation, there is nothing we can do to better ourselves. There's nothing we can do to contribute to our salvation or worthiness to be saved. It really is all a work of grace alone. Ah, yeah, but Pastor Steve, I really don't feel worthy of his love. You don't know what's happened to me. You don't know the mess I've made. Friend, don't let your feelings be of more truthfulness or weightiness than what Jesus has done on the cross for you. Don't make your past more powerful than what the Father has planned and what the Spirit does in reviving your soul. We are unworthy. We are undeserving. In God's sight, we are all ugly. 
Our sin has made us morally repugnant, a stink in his nose. We've done nothing to deserve his grace. We've been unable and unwilling to clean ourselves up. And yet, in his grand mercy and grace, he has set his eyes on us and given us life. Do we get this? Do we get that we bring nothing? Salvation is all of grace to the praise of his glory. So let me ask you, is that your testimony? If you're a believer or a follower of Jesus, I asked, you know, if I asked what is your testimony, what gospel would you point to? Would you point to the gospel of the triune God who saves us? Or is your testimony a little bit more like the gospel of providence? Uh, providence is the biblical teaching that God takes care of all things and orders all things for his good purposes. A gospel testimony of providence sounds like this. I believe in God because he took care of me. I was in a tough spot in life and he helped me to get through. He showed me patience and kindness when I was sick and stressed or in this other time and he helped me through so I believe today. Now God providing for you, it's not a bad thing but it's not a gospel that can be a firm foundation in times of struggle and trial. The gospel of the triune God, the Father who loves you, the Son who demonstrates that love and perfectly executes His Father's plan, the Spirit's regeneration and indwelling, that is a gospel that will empower you through the hard times and the good. So what is your testimony? Finally, what does this mean for the gospel that we share? The triune God is not only able to save us, but he promises to save. And that just means we need to speak up. It's not the power of our words or the eloquence of our speech or the intelligence of our answers that will bring you life to people. It's the gospel. Let's keep working on how we can share it clearly, pointing to Jesus who reveals the Father and dies for us, praying for the Spirit to use our imperfect words. And let's all do that for his glory and the growth of his kingdom. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, what a great wonder it is that we can stand before here because you came to this earth, truly man, truly God, fully divine and fully human, able to be the sacrifice on our behalf, revealing your Father to us perfectly, not helping us to know who your Father is. And thank you, Holy Spirit, that you direct us in these ways. You, point, you lift our eyes to Jesus. You enable our hearts to be opened again. You enable us to call out in faith. So Father, Son, and Spirit, continue to do this work again. Do it again. Do it again in the lives of our loved ones. Do it again in the lives of our friends, our co-workers, our colleagues, our friends at uni and school. Do it again for our neighbours and strangers that we meet. Do it again and again. Reveal yourself. Work your spirit in the hearts to bring you life. Do it all for your glory and our joy. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.